What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Let's go fishing, Shaw! You catch him out, guys! Hold on! Let's paint the scene here, Adam. So Jason Statham's Deckard Shaw is driving, I guess you'd call it a modified tow truck. The Rock's Luke Hobbs, he jumps aboard, swings a massive chain because they're going fishing for a helicopter that they're going to pull from the sky. Yeah, nailed it. That's pretty much it, right? Ladies and gentlemen, Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. This week on the show, we've got a review of the new Fast and Furious spinoff, and we'll revisit our top five Fast and Furious moments. That and more. Ride or die, Josh. Head <laughs> on film spotty. We did want to take a moment here on this show for a few thank yous. Our listeners who have contributed some of their hard-earned dollars our way in support of the show. Of course, we are always grateful for our monthly subscribers, whether it's $2 a month, 5 or 10 and some of those new names, Josh, or maybe familiar names who are contributing. Again, Chris always bet on Beige Roberts in St. Louis. He's been a longtime listener. And we have a new one, Mark Ziegler in New York, who says, I've been listening long enough, and it's time I end the shame of not being a contributor. Film spotting has brought me to some amazing movies that I'm not sure I'd have seen otherwise, and it's inspired me to take watching and writing more seriously. Keep up the great work. Thank you for that, Mark. And we also have a gold-level donation that comes from John Kissel. He's in Decatur, Georgia. John says, I fell off donating for a couple years and wanted to get back on the train. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford Sacred Cow episode makes this worth every penny. Thanks for all you do. Again, thank you to John for that gold-level donation and to Chris and Mark for those Silver Club contributions. If you want more information about how to donate to Film Spotting, you can find it on the main page of our website, filmspotting.net. Of course, there are other ways to support the show for no cost, like rating or reviewing us over at Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Film Spotting. Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. Josh, it's not a sequel. Let's get our terminology right here. It's not a prequel. It's not a reboot or a remake or, in your preferred parlance, a reheat, but a separate thing entirely. We have a couple of Fast and Furious supporting players getting their own movie. It's a spinoff. I thought maybe it would even be the first spinoff in the history of the show. Almost 15 years. Is that possible? Wait a minute. First of all, this I'm going to call this a reheat. Oh, still. you are? Oh, yeah. This is anytime they're rehashing something we've seen before in any way, it's a reheat. But are you telling me that you've never done something like this? Well, I don't remember reviewing one. Sam did a little bit of research. Back in 2010, we reviewed Get Him to the Greek. Russell Brand plays a role. He originated and forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah, kinda okay, works. so it's, yeah, it's kind of like this. I Maybe that's the only one. I have seen both films, enjoyed both films, completely forgot they were connected. <laughs> there you go. We will have a review of Hobbs and Shaw. In fact, if it can be, if we can call it thus, a still-processing review of Hobbs and Shaw as we just came from the screening and we weren't in any kind of fast cars, no Detroit muscle here, we... We walked. We did. We had a nice little stroll together. That's probably the lamest way you could leave a Fast and Furious movie (laughs) just on your two damn feet. Totally. We are also going to revisit for the second time, I think, 
our Fast and Furious Moments Top 5, which we did originally back in 2015 in anticipation of Furious 7, and then we decided to reheat yeah, <laughs> for our say. listeners in 2017. This might be it. The third time in the microwave uh-huh. may be the last time we can trot this out, but we will have some feedback that I don't think we've shared before. Who knows, Adam? That we'll respond point, to. Who knows? First, though, an actual landmark. For the show, I believe this is our first ever double ampersand review of Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. Luke Hobbs and Decker Shaw, we've got unfinished business. Shaw's sister took something from me. A virus that could wipe out half the population and I want it back. You want to tell me just what we're dealing with here? It's my sister. Family business. When it's the fate of the world, it becomes my business. This whole thing sounds really dodgy. Look after your sister. Listen, I'll handle it. The only way we survive is working together like a team. Let's do this. Buckle up, fat boy. On my three. One. Ah! <laughs> Woo! Hey, see the look on his face? You have no idea how long I've been waiting to do that. Yeah. What do listeners need to know about Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw as context for our review, Adam? As we said, two supporting players from the series, Dwayne Johnson's Luke Hobbs and Jason Statham's Deckard Shaw, who really didn't like each other in those films, they're forced to work together here to prevent Idris Elba's cybernetic bad guy, and he does just refer to himself as bad guy, from unleashing a deadly virus on the world. Along for the ride, and really almost getting equal screen time, which was refreshing, is an MI6 agent named Hattie, played by Vanessa Kirby, from Mission Impossible Fallout and where I first saw her as Princess Margaret in The Crown. Also worth noting, this is directed by David Leach, who made his debut as co-director of the first John Wick. Now, during our summer movie questions episode, Adam, I asked whether I would come out of Hobbs and Shaw as either Team Hobbs... Or Team Shaw. That was an actual question? Yeah. Wow. I'd spend a lot of time on that. I think it might have been my number one question, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Since I'm the one winging this setup for our review, Adam, I get to turn the tables and pose that question to you. Okay. I'll do it in an expanded multiple choice format here to throw in an extra wrinkle. Love it. Imagine you're the producer who gets to green light the next Fast and Furious reheat. But for contractual reasons, it can only star either Johnson as Hobbs or Statham as Shaw. And you're going to need to show your homework. I want to know your reasoning here. Your choices regarding that next movie, based on your experience of this one, are A. Hobbs, B. Shaw, C. I refuse, they only work as a pair, (laughs) or D. I miss the sincerity of Vin Diesel. When does Fast and Furious 9 come out? So wait, A is Hobbs? A is Hobbs. We're going in order here. Yeah. B is Shaw. C is they can only be a team. Yeah. You refuse to make this movie because this you you enjoyed this one so much, you just can't imagine them being a part. Or is this thing just ridiculous, doesn't work at all? Bring us back to give us more Dom. Just give me Dom. (laughs) Give me more Dom. You know what? I'm so tempted. I'm so tempted to give you like three different answers because I'm all, I'm all over the place <laughs> on this one. I could give you an answer, another one that isn't on the board, which is... I don't think that's how multiple choice tests work. I'm Team Shaw, but I want it to be Hattie Shaw. 
Oh, okay. Give me Hattie Shaw. I could have thrown that in. And The Rock. And maybe Statham, you know, just pops in every now and again. I would probably be okay with that. If I had to pick just one between the two, I have to say I'm more of a Statham guy. I'm more oh, of a, okay. I'm more of that kind of classy stealth badass, yeah, yeah. to use his own terminology in the movie, than I am The Rock and his very large frame and sense of humor. But so I'm a little up, more Statham. You'd be up for a movie with Kirby and Johnson as a pair. I think I would be. I like that. I like their chemistry and yeah. I really like her in this film. But I am on record as saying, and I know this because I looked back at my Furious 7 notes a few minutes ago, otherwise it was a complete blur, that Statham is the first... The notes first, or the fact that you'd seen it? Both. <laughs> Statham is the first compelling bad guy in the series. So okay. I think he appeared originally in 6... And we've had him through six, seven, eight, and now this film. So I'm in on Hobbs. And overall, Josh, here's where it gets tricky. The answer gets tricky. It's somewhere between C and D, actually, because there's a solid 90 minutes of this movie that is as sleek and fun as that McLaren Statham speeds through London in, that moves as efficiently and machine-like as Idris Elba's Black Superman. And there's another 45 minutes that's weighted down with so much heart that it barely moves. This is the first Fast and Furious movie for me that manages to come to a screeching halt. And it never really gets out of idle, unfortunately. And this is when the movie is supposed to be coming to its climactic finish. This isn't a spoiler because it's alluded to. We see it in the trailer, this portion where they end up in Samoa, which is, of course, Dwayne Johnson and his character Hobbs's native land when they end up in Samoa and the movie decides that it has to interject some pathos and not just some but a lot of pathos and it can't just rely on these great action set pieces and that comic banter and that borderline homoerotic bro bickering you love the bro bonding of Mm -hmm. Paul Walker and Vin Diesel in the first batch or at least the first Fast and Furious movie, well, this is bro bickering. And you know what? For the most part, I'm here for it. I really enjoy it. There's something about that dynamic and the way they play off each other. Oh, they're great. I do really enjoy and have enjoyed throughout this entire series. But man, if you're going to give me more of that sincerity, that word you use, when it tries to infuse the movie with that, that's where this film really stumbles and unfortunately kind of undid all of the the fun I had with the first two thirds or so of the film. I completely know what you mean. It, it it does deflate, but I don't think it unravels what came you before. I, no, I, I had so much fun with this thing up until that point that I was I was okay giving it that. I don't think it's probably forty five minutes. It feels it feels close, but I'd be surprised if the talk about family. <laughs> it felt literal, like ninety, but you're right. Maybe it was less than forty five. That we see, mm-hmm. which is you know, of course, one of these themes from the Fast and Furious franchise gets laid on really thickly. I agree. They probably could have cut that in half, and it would have been fine. They make up for it. The, that bit with the tow trucks. It comes after that portion, and that is just ridiculous fun mm-hmm. when you see three or four well, trucks sure. being <laughs> lifted into the air and how that plays out um it, it's just very fun it also ends i think this that sequence in the film concludes with a three person i don't think this is spoiling anything but basically mano a mano fist fight um and i am glad that it came back to that rather than any sort of bullet gun pyrotechnics or even another ending in some sort of car chase it gets 
intimate in a way and concludes that way that I think is fitting and I appreciated. The family stuff is laid on, as I said, way too thickly. They try, they set it up early with Hobbes having the relationship with his daughter and not wanting to share his family past with her. And then I don't think this is a spoiler to say that Vanessa Kirby's character, Hattie, is Shaw's sister. We learned that fairly early on. And I think, I think that's we an, know it as soon as we see a flashback. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's confirmed a little later. And I think that's an interesting wrinkle. I think that adds... A nice dynamic. It doesn't become like this romantic triangle that might have been a little bit more familiar and a little, you know, a little bit more tiresome. I think they lean into the chemistry between the two leads mm-hmm. um, just enough. You do get snippets of this in some of the earlier films, and you might say, wow, that's all I needed, like comic relief. But I think they are funny enough and their timing is good enough. And a lot of the dialogue, the writing is hilarious enough. The story, we should say, is by Chris Morgan, and he has a screenplay credit along with Gary Scott Thompson and Drew Pierce. And I know Chris Morgan has written at least one other entry in this series, maybe many more. I apologize I didn't Google his entire IMDb page at this point. And I think some of the dialogue they're given here is genuinely funny on its face. I mean, it recognizes their personas, their physical features, has fun with that, their distinctions, their differences. And I laughed through, you know, the first good hour and a half of this, I would say. I think it nicely balances those moments of bickering with great action. And maybe here we should shift to the action because I think it's absolutely excellent. It's Mm -hmm. I'd forgotten that Leach directed this and it had some of that um, very visceral, intimate, hand-to-hand combat Mm -hmm. that we did see in the original John Wick that I think has been kind of missing from some of the later installments. Vanessa Kirby is involved in a lot of those scenes and proves to be, you know, whatever stunt work might have been involved as well um, to be, you know, an excellent screen presence as a fighter. The early one she has with Dwayne Johnson, Mm -hmm. obviously they're mismatched in terms of physicality, but the sequence and the choreography makes use of that. That's the whole point of that sequence. Chemistry even in it when they barely say anything to each other. It works. Yep. And so there's a real nice balance here of that witty banter um, and of excellent action scenes that carried me through. There's the lull, um, but I think it recovers in the end for me. Hmm. Yeah, I wish that it did. I think that there is no doubt you're correct to point out the intimacy of that ending. I really appreciate. And yet a few of those moments the movie has to give us. It has to shoehorn in to get us there including some bits of dialogue. And look, I know there are people out there saying you don't come to the Fast and Furious movies for its great screenplay. But actually, when I think back on the movies that I appreciate the most in the series, they did find a way to take this absurdity and these over-the-top action set pieces and inject them with just enough sincerity and kind of authentic emotion and this whole theme of family. And they balance those things in a way that, did not feel clunky to me at all. And oh boy, there is some dialogue here that I'm genuinely surprised there wasn't more laughter in the theater when they're said. And I think that's ultimately a limitation of the screenplay. Not so much. I want to defend Statham and Dwayne Johnson because I think they are both really talented performers. But I think you were saying this as we were walking over here. The series took a turn, not for the better, for you, like it did for most of us when 
Fast Five hit and Dwayne Johnson was introduced because... Became more jokey. Yeah, it became more jokey, and that didn't work for you in those films. And here, when the movie has to shift as quickly as it does into full-blown sincerity, I didn't buy a second of it. And I was thinking about it in terms of Diesel and Walker, and of course that made sense. Those movies could pull off that balance because Walker was essentially playing the most earnest guy on the planet every scene, right? And Vin Diesel can't be on screen without taking himself way too seriously, without them anchoring this in the way that they do. And they they do, to use that word again, balance the action and the banter of Statham and Johnson. Then something is off here. It was for me anyway. And I think that's where the movie does misstep, is that if the filmmakers had fully embraced it being a Hobbs and Shaw movie, actually being a spinoff and not feeling like they had to tether it as close as they do to the Fast and Furious franchise by interjecting these themes of family, by throwing in some other nods, some kind of fan service nods, including during that sequence that you like with the tow trucks. I think the movie actually would have been more compelling for me if it had just stuck to what makes it so effective when Hobbs and Shaw are fighting each other on screen, verbally and physically. It's certainly not its strength. They hit it way too hard in that Samoa sequence. I think they touch on it lightly enough with those family connections that I mentioned among characters. That's all they needed. That's all the connection they needed and let that kind of run and we would have gotten it. It would have been fine. Let me throw something formal at you and see if at least you appreciated this. Um, I loved how they ran with, basically it's in the title, Hobbs and Shaw and parallelism is kind of the driving aesthetic of this movie in so many ways. And I just kept seeing it repeated. It had to have been intentional. And it is, it's kind of the joy of so many of these sequences is how far they push that. Yeah. Uh, It's very obvious from the start where we first meet them. Split screen. A split screen, right? So they're, they're different breakfast routines, a lot of laughs, how they wake up, what they eat, how they go to work differently. Mm -hmm. A split screen right there. Very obvious, but it becomes, a little, little more subtle throughout the film, but yeah. almost is always used. There's their first meeting when they're brought in by the CIA for this mission, and they're just facing off against each other in the same shot, mm-hmm. hurling insults. Very funny. That's where we start to get some of that banter. And then this sequence is also hinted at in the trailer when they're racing down the outside of a building and Hobbs chooses to just jump and hang on to the <laughs> repelling wire and Shaw takes the elevator and yeah. you've just, again, got the parallel image of their approach. And even little things, this is where I started to notice it and it, it just had to be a strategy. The sequence where they're taking a commercial airplane flight, they have to. They're, mm-hmm. they're on the lamb at this point. And the shot... Don't think about that one too much. <laughs> no, don't think about a lot of this too much. But the shot has the aisle of the airplane yes. perfectly splitting the screen, and each of them are on an aisle seat, right. and they go at it there. And then just one more I want to mention. Um, they're invading the, the lair at this point. They get to a hall where there are two doors in front of them. Pick a door. All right, then. No, that's my door. What's the matter with you? I made a mistake. This is your door. Oh, no. No backsies. What's the matter? You got a lot of bad guys behind that door? What's this? You might learn something. So they each, of course, have to take a door. And then we get this parallel cutting of what they encounter in each room. And there's this glass wall between the two rooms where they can see each other. So we're cutting back and forth to the the independent fights they have. It's great. It's just 
I love how the movie continues to lean into that and make it just formally interesting on that level by taking advantage of the construction that so many so many buddy action movies have had. I, I can't think of one that has pushed it in terms of how the screen, mm. how the actual frame is used to this degree. Yeah, and actually that sequence you're talking about, it occurs to me going back to the other sequence you mentioned where – One's in the elevator and one's going down the wire. Yeah. Those are parallels of each other, right? Because in that yeah, sequence, sure. it's Statham's character who is inside a glass encasement. He's inside yeah. this elevator. The rock is working way too hard and Statham's making faces at him about how kind of boring this and is so for him. And that. then they flip it. Yes. It's always a case yes. where throughout the whole film, you're right, very blatant with the split screen at the beginning, becomes a little bit more subtle, but almost scene to scene is always about showing that they are similar and of course, they have their differences, but anything you can do, I can do better. And yes. that dynamic is yes. always going to be at play. So you're right. The parallel structure is there inherently in the film. In fact, you know what? Forget what I said about some of the clunky lines and the message of this movie, Josh. The more I think about it, the more it really hit me. This whole Hobbs and Shaw thing and their their divisiveness, mm-hmm. the whole movie's an allegory for our modern times. <laughs> well, Hobbs course. and Shaw is the first movie of the Trump era. <laughs> These people who hate each other. They discover their yeah. common humanity by right. saving humanity. Hobbs and Shaw can save us all. I, I kind of assume that going in, but <laughs> all right, let me ask you one more question. Yeah. You know, especially when it comes to the Fast and Furious movies, I like to look for my moments of Zen chaos. Sure. When we've got this insane, outrageous action going on, and then all of a sudden there's a moment of pristine clarity. I, I had one. You may not have had one. I don't, maybe maybe no. you kind of zoned out during I didn't the Samoa. Down. It wasn't during the Samoa sequence. Okay. But how about the shot? This comes at the end of the coming down the outside of the building, mm-hmm. the rappelling in the elevator. There's one shot where in the rear right of the frame, the same instant that – oh, and we got to talk about Idris Elba as um, Brixton, I think, right? Yes. Yes. So in the rear right of the frame – Brixton and Hobbs come crashing down onto the roof of a car in the left foreground of the frame. At the same instant, Shaw steps out of the elevator to take out two henchmen. And it was just, you know, whatever effects may have been employed in getting that shot, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah, it is. And overall, I do like Elba in the film. He's Idris Elba and the whole black Superman thing kind of works. And I do like that he introduces himself to the characters in the film and to us as the audience by saying, I'm the bad guy, right? So the movie is self-aware in that way, and I think that that is ultimately effective. It's funny, though, speaking of self-awareness, the moment I was about to write down in my notes, well, he's basically the Terminator. I think 30 seconds later, I think it's The Rock's character, Dwayne Johnson, who says, oh, great, so we're battling the Terminator. The movie just acknowledges that, and I do think, unfortunately, I'm going to use this as a negative, but they way overdo that whole bit with the eyeball readout system where since he's mostly well i liked it the first 17 times i saw it i don't know that i needed to keep returning to it throughout the film where he's analyzing the threat level and the punch velocity coming towards him and he's got this great system josh and yet it's unable to detect sarcasm or notice when people are stalling for time (laughs) he's really not that evolved of a human being or a machine you could improve on that system but you know this is something too yes as i think about these movies where they go into this kind of super superhero realm. And looking back at my notes, I've touched on before with this series, how many different movies and franchises it steals from. Unabashedly, it's a series that turned into part James Bond, part Ocean's Eleven, part Jason Bourne. 
having started is basically just a ripoff of Point Break. And here, honestly, there's a little bit almost of Avengers in this film where not only do they kind of suggest that he's a type of Superman, but he's kind of a Thanos villain, right? Because his his reason his and his methods yeah. and his motivation for trying to accomplish the evil deed that he's trying to accomplish are very Thanos-like. I don't think he's overall as good of a villain as Thanos is. I definitely don't feel at all any compassion or any sensitivity no, at all no. towards what Although, he might be trying to accomplish, despite his terrible means with which he's trying to do it. There's still something a little bit more complex about Thanos than although they do Elba here. They do he has someone he reports to. And there's an element of pathos in that, I would argue. And I think the use of, you know, the technology that allows him to see things coming and that sort of thing, when we see through his point of view, I think that actually does pay off in the end in a poignant way that um, we don't want to talk about. But um, I, I, I thought he was a, a I know strong villain. Suggesting. And I think and I think he was always intimidating. He always um, you always believed that he would be able to take care easily take them out right and man some of those motorcycle he, he has a kit style now that's the cool stuff motorcycle where that's it fun just, every it time comes, it just arrives yeah and the way he manages that thing there's a that car chase sequence there's two shots in there one where he goes underneath like a semi on his motorcycle You've seen it before in movies. I don't think you've seen it like this. And then there's also a shot where Leach swings the camera. It's unbroken. Again, I'm sure effects work came into Mm -hmm. play here where he goes – essentially gets launched through a double-decker London bus and the camera swings around as he comes out the other side Mm -hmm. and hits the ground. And there's – yeah, there's – the action in this, I I would agree. I think it stands up to some of the best in the franchise so far. And I'm sure for a lot of people, that's that's the only bar they cared that this would meet. Probably. And I think there may have been even a direct homage to – Leach's debut as a co-director on John Wick, where one of the introductory sequences where we're seeing the parallel of what Statham is up to and what Dwayne Johnson is up to, he's walking into, Johnson is, into a nightclub-like setting. And you got sort of the neon lights and that club atmosphere as he walks through it. Very reminiscent of watching Keanu Reeves in some of those sequences. And actually, all through the John Wick movies, especially in the first, I think, 30 minutes of this film, you get a lot of that same kind of action but mixed with comedy not in the banter even so much i mean just in kind of the sense of humor and the playfulness of the camera and how some of these fights play out there's humor in that and there's intricacy to it in terms of the way the camera does swing sometimes and what we see with that motorcycle where it makes perfect sense in a way that he's always able to just reattach himself to it yeah. as sort of a machine which he is so right. it always feels like even if he gets separated it's always there and i do think the way they use the effects there is really good. This is also, Josh, I'll just point out the second review in a row where we're talking about a movie that prominently features a flamethrower. So one more, one more, and we get a trend piece. All right, I'll write it. If you see Hobbs and Shaw, which is currently out in wide release, and you agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Massacre Theater is up ahead. Promise this time it will be all in English. Plus, yep, we're going to revisit once more our top five fast and furious moments. Stay with us. I've been a mess of late And you wouldn't be impressed But I've got something on my chest I've been stressed of late 
the thrill of making movies and studying characters and getting to work with people that you respect and admire is so far superior to everything else. Hey, Mark. At least for me, you know, that's how I how I think about things. That's from the new doc, Love and Tosha, about actor Anton Yelchin. Yelchin died tragically in a 2016 car accident. He was just 27. Adam, you've managed to catch this. What did you make of it? Yeah, I caught up with this and another documentary called Between Me and My Mind. So I've got Antosha and Anastasio for the fish fans out there. These are two portraits of artists. They're each rooted in tragedy. In one, the artist is still alive, Trey Anastasio, the front man from Fish, and he's grateful and he's arguably thriving. So the film takes a more fly-on-the-wall approach and follows him through recording and working on his various new pieces and also interacting with friends and family. In the other, it's a case where the artist left us too soon, way too soon. So the film relies on a lot of home movie and personal footage and a lot of talking heads. And I think they're both at times quite moving and insightful about these performers and their work. I mentioned Anastasio, the lead singer and guitar player and songwriter of Fish. He's playing with his band and he's recording new material for a side project, but he's mostly still trying to get over the loss of his only sibling, a sister, while also dealing with the pending death of his longest and best friend who has just been diagnosed with stage four cancer. So that really grounds the entire film. And there are allusions to in some discussions about his past struggles with drug abuse and how he was once arrested, but he's recovered from all of that. So it's not really a case where in this movie he's making amends. If he did that at all, that process has probably already occurred. But it is a case where the documentary feels like he's taking stock of everyone in his life who he loves and everyone who loves him, which includes his bandmates. It's his mom. It's his dad. It's his daughters. And he's using the doc here with the director, Stephen Cantor, to try to express that love and maybe more profoundly to understand it. And in Love, Antosha, the big reveal of that documentary is that Yelchin was diagnosed as a young child with cystic fibrosis. And he managed to not only keep it a secret from the industry, but from the public in general, and carve out a career that maybe never reached the levels it should have. And in the film, we get the sense that that's something he struggled with. But I looked up his IMDb credits, and between 2000 appearing in ER on TV to his death in 2016, he had 69 credits. And they show a lot of those films, if not all of them, and those TV projects in the movie. And there's a lot of titles, Josh, that I had never even heard of. Hmm. But then there's stuff like Hearts in Atlantis, where I remember seeing him for the first time as a young boy opposite Anthony Hopkins making an impression. And in 2007, we talked about Charlie Bartlett here on the show, and I was quite favorable about that film, and I loved his performance in it. I seem to remember my co-host at the time, Maddie, chiding me for comparing Anton Yelchin's breakout in that movie to Ellen Page in Juno. I thought he was that good. I think that take may hold up over time because Yelchin just was that talented of an actor. He was very good in the Star Trek series and, of course, in Green Room, probably the last film where we touched on one of his performances of the Jeremy Saunier film, but it really makes you appreciate the actor he was and the artist and the son he was. His parents were Russian figure skaters who fled Russia with him, I think when he was just six months old, came to America, and based on all the footage you see, he had cameras running all the time and was shooting his own films and trying to make his own projects. 
he was preternaturally gifted and eager to entertain and had the talent to do it. But you also come away appreciating who he was as a friend and as a cinephile and like Trey Anastasio as a thinker. They're just both figures who seem deeply connected to their friends and family, but who were also always searching for some deeper connection to the world. So I really enjoyed both docs and encourage people to check them out if they are able to. Neither of them are widely available right now. You can see Love and Tosha in L.A. It opens there this weekend. It opens in New York next weekend, August 9th. I'm not sure yet about Chicago or other cities. And Between Me and My Mind hit select theaters on July 17th. Well, looking ahead towards next week for us, we are going to get back to our 9 from 99 series with a bonus review. I don't think this was part of the original plan, but Spike Jones's debut film being John Malkovich, we want to throw in the mix. Now, I thought I saw a note yep. just was as gonna throw we it out. got out of the screening. <laughs> On that, our production meeting. Okay. I did put in Slack just before we saw the new Fast and Furious movie, that maybe we should bump up the Blair Witch Project, which we had on tap ah, for two or three weeks from now, only yes. because right now coincides with its release back ah, in 1999. Okay. So maybe just make it a little more timely, sure. I suppose, to reckon with that almost exactly 20 years later. And let's put Malkovich off a couple weeks. But I do think that's a bonus film that listeners voted on. We'll end up with 10 from 99. Actually. Okay, well, that's fine. That, that'll, that'll still work. And I'm cool with that. Blair Witch Project, my favorite film of that year. Mm. I've watched a couple times since. Pretty sure I'll still be high on it, but am always eager to revisit that one. So far, we have done The Sixth Sense, The Matrix, and Fight Club. I think those were all rewarding for us to revisit at least. Yeah, absolutely. And now that I think about it, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we aren't going to end up with 10, 9 from 99 reviews. We did swap out Toy Story 2. That's right. So being John Malkovich taking its place there. If you do want to follow along and you want to be sure to do your homework before next week's show, just visit our episodes page at filmspotting.net or follow us on social media. We will post exactly which of the 99 movies we plan to discuss next week. And also, if you go to filmspotting.net and click on marathons, you'll see which titles will comprise our next marathon. Now, we're kind of springing this on listeners. Another last minute decision here by us and Sam to start here in August, our next marathon, which is Marlena Dietrich and Joseph von Sternberg. We did, in fairness, throw this out there months ago. I think Mm -hmm. back when we did our previous marathon, we said this was going to be the next one. We've had the box set on our marathons page for a while. If you visited there, there is a criterion set that has, I think, the films that make up their collaboration. And we'll probably make up our marathon. So if you want more information, you want to be sure to follow along, you want to be prepared for next week, because I think that's what we're going to do next week. We will have those titles posted over at filmspotting.net. Again, just click on marathons. And we've looked into this a little bit. Not many of those titles are easily available via streaming. So you might want to, if you do like I do, and work through your local library system, get some of those requests in um, sooner rather than later so they can get to you in time. Yeah. And we will acknowledge that we do have a few other great marathon topics, including Hirokazu Koreda, a filmmaker we probably should get to here at some point sooner rather than later. We've both seen some of his movies, but there are many we haven't seen that are blind spots for us. And also, Sam suggested that we might even go the route of Chinese cinema, but very specifically following the lead of one of our listeners and Chinese cinema experts, Sean Gilman, 
when IndieWire, I think, did their top 100 films of the decade, which, as listeners know, Film Spotting Madness is coming. We've posted our shortlist. It's decidedly absent when it comes to Chinese films, and Sean wanted to rectify the IndieWire list a little bit. I think he threw out 11 or so titles that are the must-see films of the decade, and I'm pretty sure I haven't seen any of them, Josh. So when you talk about blind spots, that's another one we might just have to do here at some point. Lastly, we do want to plug our friends at the next picture show. If you've been following our friend Tasha Robinson just here a few weeks ago on Twitter, you know that she was dealing with a health issue. She was sharing a lot of her thoughts and what was going on as she was going through that process seemed a little bit scary at first, but she seems to have come out the other side. Okay. We're very happy to hear that. And they are back recording shows. We touched on the art of self-defense on our last show. My recent interview with that writer, director, Riley Stearns, they've paired that movie with fight club and coming after that, they're going to take Hal Ashby's shampoo and pair it with Quentin Tarantino's once upon a time in Hollywood. I'm pretty sure one of the connections there may be the most direct, connection there is that jay sebring is a character played by emile hirsch in mm-hmm. once upon a time in hollywood i'm pretty sure i've got this right josh because shampoo's another blind spot in hal ashby's filmography for yeah, me me too but warren Beatty is essentially playing jay sebring in that film uh-huh. the hairdresser okay. character is jay sebring i was wondering the connection so there you go between those two thank you look forward to that episode of next picture show let's take a look at the current film spotting poll where we're asking which MCU Phase 4 film project are you most looking forward to? Your options, Black Widow, which is the first one up in May 2020, and then Eternals in November of 2020, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, that's coming out in 2021, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Adam's favorite title of all these, and Thor, Love and Thunder, one more here, Blade. So of all of those, Thor, perhaps not a surprise, still way ahead, but go ahead and vote at filmspotting.net if you haven't done so yet. Of course, leave a comment too and let us know where you're voting from. We're going to share those results on next week's show, but for now, go ahead and vote at filmspotting.net. All right, let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks back, I stepped away from the mic and let guest host Tasha Robinson and Angelica Jade Bastien massacre this scene. Jag har sett det på målningar och hört i visorna. Ja, jag är verkligen en ganska skicklig schackspelare. Du kan ändå inte vara skickligare än jag. Varför vill du spela schack med mig? Det är min sak. That's Max von Sydow with Bengt Eckerot as Death in 1957's The Seventh Seal, written and directed, of course, by Igmar Bergman. That massacre was part of a show a couple weeks back where Tasha and Angelica and I reviewed Ari Aster's Midsommar Adam. Say it with me. Sure. Along with our top five horror movie performances, why in the world, The Seventh Seal. Well, let's see what listeners came up with. So that film takes place in Sweden. Darwin writes in. Ingmar Bergman, of course, is Swedish. There's a character named Ingmar in that Ari Aster film. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> in what film? Oh, I'm not saying it. 
<laughs> Though I will say it in a second. We got a great pronunciation tip here coming up. Oh, Josh. I love pronunciation tips. There's also, Darwin points out, a dance of death in both films. Nice work, Darwin. Here's Mikhail sure. in Solzborg, Sweden. For someone living in Sweden, this was too easy, since this scene has been parodied many times in various films and TV shows over here. So even if I haven't seen the film myself, I still know that whole scene in and out in my head. I also need to add that Tasha's Swedish was surreal to listen to, having me giggle like an idiot during work. It reminded me of when me and my brother in the 90s, fiddling with Windows sound recorder, saying silly sentences, then reversing the sound, learning the reverse sentence, and then saying it back to the recorder, and then reverse it again for the final result. It pretty much sounded like Tasha's take on it here. Ja, the thing is scammy bit. So yeah, thanks for bringing back that memory to me and hope to hear your take on other languages in future massacres. I'm sorry, Josh. It's actually Mikhail. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> I just had to further, right. further hurt our relations with Sweden. Bastian in Copenhagen, Denmark, wrote in kudos to Tasha for her rendition of death. But what gave it away besides the language probably was that iconic game of chess. Probably. Here's Ed Savoy in Harrisonburg, Virginia. The tie-ins include the Swedish setting and the fact that you discussed the top five horror movie performances. And I would consider Bergman to be a frequent player in the horror genre. From the creeping dread of Persona, the surreal horror of Hour of the Wolf, or the domestic tension of films like Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, The Silence, and Cries and Whispers. After all, it's no coincidence that Wes Craven remade The Virgin Spring as Last House on the Left. Basically, I'm saying that Bergman and Craven should be considered genre bedmates, and I'm not even kidding. All right, we'll take you seriously, Ed. Finally, Bill Menoyo. Man. This is a tough one, Josh. Pronunciations all over the place in Woodbridge, Virginia says, I couldn't really follow the massacre because I hadn't seen the first six movies in the series. Very good. Very clever, Bill. Now, I said we were going to get to a pronunciation tip. Apparently, Sam didn't feel like we needed to keep it in here, and he took it out. But Thomas, or Tomas, though it's spelled Thomas with T-H, Carlson in Uppsala, Sweden, the birthplace of Ingmar Bergman, wrote in and said, Yes, And I'm going to use this. This is the definitive take here, Josh. He says, regarding Josh's pronunciation of the name of that film, it's almost spot on. Just a little bit of emphasis is needed on the first syllable, Midsommar, and it's perfect. Okay. So it's not Midsommar, but it's Midsommar. 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 Okay. I'll try to adjust that. I will as well. And Thomas, just for information, your name is pronounced Tumas. (laughs) Though... I'm American, damn it, and I just want to say midsummer. Oh, jeez. Can I just say midsummer? No, no. Okay. Reach in to the film spotting hat, Josh, and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Sabrina Alano in Silver Spring, Maryland. Congratulations, Sabrina. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t shirt. It's a scene, man. Memorize it. <laughs> what? Look, man, undercover cops got to be Marlon Brando. To do this job, you got to be a great actor. You got to be naturalistic. You got to be naturalistic as hell. That brings us to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. And no crazy languages for us or accents to try to explore here, but there is a lot of talking over each other. And of course, as usual, we haven't prepared at all. So it's probably going to be a train wreck. High degree of difficulty. Kind of like this movie. And. <laughs> Oh, man. After watching this clip, I'd love to watch this whole movie again through uh, 2019 eyes. Um, yeah, we're gonna, we got to channel Hobbs and Shaw. A little bickering here. Little Okay? So just put that That'll in your head. That'll be so hard. Not, not the sincere part that you hated so much. Uh-huh. 
Okay. Uh-huh. The, the angry part. You the ready? fake sincerity? Yeah. I need okay. real sincerity. All right. Let's do it. And action. All right. Seven guys with seven wives. Shut up, Butch. I'm good at seven this. Seven guys with seven wives with- Shut the F up, Butch. He said seven wives with seven sacks. Seven times seven is 49. Now, tell me the rest. Well, your sack was seven. Weren't you listening? Yeah, I was listening. I didn't hear every F and What thing. is wrong with you? Besides having a bad F and hangover for one all right. thing. All right. Seven wives times seven. 49. With seven cats. Seven times 49 is- 343, right? You asking me or telling me? I'm telling you. 343 times 7 is 2,401. That's what you got, right? Yeah, that's what I got. That's it. 2401? That's it. Dial 555-2401. No, wait. It's a trick. It's a trick. I forgot about the man. And And scene. scene. Now, speaking of the man, you you just got a hint of the man you were playing in this scene. A hint of it. And that's I, enough, Josh. One line? Did I get one line? No, maybe one two word. or three. Yeah, two or three words. <laughs> I'll take it. Two or three words. I didn't pull off the actor I was trying to portray at all. But if you know what film we just massacred, you can email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August 12th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. I used to drag here back in high school. That railroad crossing up there is exactly a quarter mile away from here. On green, I'm going for it. So officially, it's got to be retired after this. But thanks to the continued success of all things fast and all things furious, every couple of years it seems we get to bring out this old chestnut, our top five fast and furious moments. I don't think we retire it till they retire it. Okay, good point. Originally recorded back in 2015 after Josh and I street raced through the first six films in time for the release of Furious 7. We did last revisit this top five in 2017 along with the release of The Fate and the Furious, which I had no recollection of reviewing <laughs> on the show. And Josh, you didn't either, but that's because you weren't here for it. I'm not sure you even saw it. No, I saw it and not the biggest fan of that one. I like okay. others better. Um, so I have an excuse for not remembering that we, if we reviewed it or not on the show. I don't know That's what right. happened to you. Well, we maybe should have looked ahead to what the franchise has in store for us because Fast and Furious 9 is due in theaters next May. Somehow we're going to have to come up with another top five topic, Josh. Maybe we'll have to review that one and do something completely original yeah. tied to the franchise. There you go. I am all for it, at least right now with the distance of a year or so to <laughs> worry about it. Now, before we get back into the replay, mm-hmm. we thought it would be fun to go back into the mailbag and share some of the responses we got to it and give everybody a little bit of a taste of how the top five went and maybe cover one or two moments that you're not going to hear in the top five. I love this email we got from Chris Moody in Tetbury, UK. Now I've heard it all. A sincere, open, properly considered 100-minute exploration and analysis of a film franchise that includes a flagship action sequence that would defy even the most generous suspensions of disbelief. And the one in particular he's talking about there, because God knows there's many of them in the franchise, but multiple listeners wrote in about the end of Fast 6, which articles have been written about the fact that the whole thing takes place on an airplane and Mm -hmm. on a runway. And apparently if you actually really broke it down and did the math, the runway would have to be over 18 miles long, (laughs) which does seem right. If you've seen it, very plausible full disclosure, Chris continues. I've not seen any of these films in their entirety, but this is partly because I've been educated by film spotting to concentrate on good cinema. And there's more than enough of that to go around and keep me busy for years before fast and furious rises to the top of the queue. For instance, in the last week, I finally watched the grand Budapest hotel, Gone Girl, and Kubrick's Paths of Glory. 
Anyway, I've been trying to process what I just experienced listening to the latest episode and came up with a few theories. A, you're pitching for more mainstream sponsors. You're aiming high and you need to be mainstream, but premium mainstream, accessible to a wide audience, but still intelligent, knowing, quality. You nailed it. B, this was a test of our loyalty, a 100-minute version of Adam and Maddie's I'm Still Here argument. You're trying to show us what it would be like if film spotting was like everyone else and reviewed everything, whether they actually liked it or not. It's a joke, right? C, you finally cracked. Much as you love the Satchajit Ray, Korean Tours, and Ophel's marathons, you needed this. Like gym freaks need an occasional cheesecake blowout. There's no shame in this. You're human after all. <laughs> D, in the words much used by listeners, when I started out on my film spotting journey, 2007, are you guys high? Were you recovering from surgery? Did you have a blow to the head on some prescription medication? Seriously, though, you did nail it. I have never given these films a moment's thought, but you've actually whetted my interest. I'm not sure I can ever take Vin Diesel seriously, and some of the dialogue clips you played were genuinely terrible, but your discussion about the purity and clarity of the action sequences was terrific. You did nail it. Thanks for this break from the film spotting norm. Now, Chris does throw in that that all said, he'll revoke his own film spotting membership if he hears any of the following in future shows. Top five Adam Sandler comedies. Top five like really cool explosions, <laughs> which I'm just going to say we're about 230 episodes away from that. We might be if closer. We're lucky. We might if be we're closer. lucky. Any discussion of Michael Bay and his post-feminist auteur's redefinition of the relationship between an artist and his muse, Megan Fox, or anything, anything at all about Twilight. Bravo, gentlemen. Keep it up. If you don't drift to win, what do you drift for? Very good question. All right, let's move on to Drew Brennan's comments here. Drew's from Chicago. One of my favorite scenes is similar to the scene in Tokyo Drift that you talked about on the show where they go through the very crowded intersection. I really like the scene in Tokyo Drift where Neela and Sean are driving down the hills and drifting, and it is night out. Neela talks about going there as a kid, and there are perfect colors in that scene. Very serene music. And it makes the whole take just really cool. Alex Lovendahl from Madison, Wisconsin says, I had to jump in and give my favorite moment in the series the short exchange after the first drag race in the first movie in which Paul Walker blurts out, I almost had you with a great smile before Vin Diesel perfectly puts him back in his place. I entered the series with Fast Five, but that was the moment I was sold on those two. And finally, we'll close with David Hill in Chester, New York. And he's talking about a moment I think listeners are going to hear in a second that was your number four fast and furious moment we have a little bit of a different take on the quality of the screenwriting and the acting and the power of this exchange that happens near the end another exchange from paul walker and vin diesel in the first fast and furious movie there was a point of contention i had with adam about the problem he had with one of the memorable moments from the series and that is the dom and brian quarter mile at a time dialogue speech even when i disagree with you guys on an idea or topic in a film i see the validity of your position but i thought adam not buying this moment was wrong i thought you were dead wrong I will go as far to say Michael Phillips, Indiana Jones, and Unforgiven wrong. I thought Josh stated clearly why this scene works well. This scene and the popular line included lends credence to the ethos of these characters and serves as a window into Toretto's character and a bridge between him and Brian in that both look to get lost in the moment of high speed. The idea of him stating that the 10 seconds is all that matter doesn't really conflict much with his idea of family. You see in the first film how Dom acts as a surrogate figure for most members of his crew, and he puts his life on the line for them. 
But also, you can acknowledge that when chasing the rush, all that matters in that split moment is your disassociation from daily life and all that comes with it, including family. The moment even acts as a precursor to that beloved sublime scene in the weaker Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift you guys talked about. It can be seen as the visual counterpart to Dom's words. I thought the quarter-mile scene in the garage was well-written and the moment endearing with the simple score notes in the background. I think Vin Diesel is mostly in action hero mode for this series, but he has moments that show the acting chops he does possess. I think A Man Apart and Find Me Guilty are films that provide good examples. While most of the series' highlights come from very good car chases, amazing fight sequences, and the great ensembles that really clicks completely in Fast Five and so on, there are a few well-acted scenes that gives some substance to the great style. And this is one of them. You still have my respect, Adam. Keep on with the great show, guys. Well, I do appreciate that, David. So if you want to hear me get it completely wrong in response to Josh's number four pick, but overall, the two of us just nailing it, as Chris suggests, these are our top five Fast and Furious moments. I hear Rio's nice this time of year. Cops are getting on. I guess we're doing our job. I'm a walking target. I don't want you around when they catch up to me. Ride or die, remember? Dom, how long have we been doing this? And now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's too dangerous? Come on. You're listening to Film Spotting, where ride or die is also the words we live by. We are sharing our top five fast and furious moments, looking over all seven films of the franchise so far. What five scenes, sequences, or maybe just those little moments themselves stood out the most for us as the most memorable? Josh. I am dying to hear your five scenes. Yeah, the reason I thought moments would be perfect is because having only seen the first film even, I could tell that these were pictures that had those little flickers. There were going to be things maybe we laughed about, things that just weren't the sort of films we're into, but there were going to be flickers where everything came together and probably mostly action scenes, racing scenes, but also that sort of sublime ridiculousness that I talked about when we were reviewing Furious 7. And there's actually a comment here from a very minor character in Tokyo Drift that I think set me up for how I wanted to think about this list. It's Natalie Kelly. She's really one of the poor female parts in the franchise. Mm -hmm. But she does describe at one point in this monologue the nighttime drive she'd take up in the mountain roads. And she just says at some point, it's just the moment. And that's right. That was right for me. I mean, this franchise has been a collection of just these really nice moments. So that's what I've selected here. My number five does come from Tokyo Drift, even though I didn't rank it all that highly, but it has this spectacular vehicular mating ritual. Hmm. Totally throwaway moment, but I love what director Justin Lin does here. This is the film that he came on to the franchise with. It's the third film, and he really upped its game in terms of form, I think. He has this kinetic camera. He employs a judicious use of slow motion here and there. It just has this overall lucidity that does go on to be one of the hallmarks of the franchise. So this is where Lucas Black and Sung Kang, they're the Paul Walker Vin Diesel stand-ins in this <laughs> Yeah, he plays Han version. throughout the franchise. He does, yeah. We he don't does see continue. Lucas Black again except briefly. Very briefly and a little bit older, yes, as we is. all are. <laughs> well, here they're driving around Tokyo, and they notice these two women sitting at a stoplight in their own souped-up race car. So the men's car 
proceeds to squeal in this circle and it just continues. Like, I don't know how many circles they do around the women's car, number of turns until the women smile and hold out this sheet of paper with their phone numbers. The guys, they straighten their car out, race by in a blur and just grab the paper as they pass. And meanwhile, Lynn's camera is a part of this as well because it gets this overhead shot where it too is spinning in a circle. So it's silly, it's sublime, and it's it's sort of the franchise's version of a meet-cute. This is how you yeah. meet-cute in the Fast and Furious world. <laughs> it is, and it does tie back to something Lucas Black's character asks earlier about, well, what do you race for then if it's not for other cars? And he gives you the answer there, Han does, with that mating ritual. My number five, Josh, comes from your favorite installment nice. in the series Fast and Furious, which is the fourth, if you need a little bit of help distinguishing them. And I like that ride or die dialogue we came in with here with Rodriguez and with Vin Diesel because it isn't all about, we talked about this a lot with Furious 7, those big bombastic action moments. It is sometimes about believe it or not, the dialogue and the interplay between characters and the emotion. And there is a dialogue scene between Brian and Mia Toretto, Jordana Brewster, who, of course, is the sister of Vin Diesel's Dom. And they had a relationship going back to one. She felt betrayed. They finally come together in a sequence here in four where they come together and get to finally kind of confront each other about their past and maybe their future. And I like this scene a lot. I'm calling it the lying to yourself scene. I like it for two reasons, and I picked it for two reasons. One is it was, for me, the first profound bit of dialogue in the series that didn't strike me as totally cornball. I actually think that there are a couple really good dialogue scenes delivered really well by Sung Kang, who plays Han, in Tokyo Drift, but I watched Tokyo Drift at the very end, I thought I'd already seen it, and so I wasn't necessarily going to revisit it, but after seeing Seven, I wanted to go back and finally see it. I'm glad I did because it turns out I'd never seen the whole film. But he has a couple of good lines, but through the first film and certainly the second film, none of the scenes where anybody ever tried to be serious or heavy about anything worked for me. Not even in your beloved Fast and Furious 1, Josh. Oh, we'll get Sorry. to that in my next pick. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> I had a feeling we would. But in this scene, both actors are performing with conviction, just earnest enough, not overselling it at all. And this conflict is the other key theme of the franchise for me beyond family. What do you stand for? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Part of what makes Dom so compelling as a hero is that he doesn't worry about those labels. He's established his own code. He lives his life. He has his own sense of right and wrong. Brian has no idea. And that's partly why he's drawn so much to Dom's character and his clarity. Mia nails him on it in this scene. I lied to you. I lied to Dom. I lied to everybody. That's what I do best. That's why the feds recruited me. Maybe you're lying to yourself. Maybe you're not the good guy pretending to be a bad guy. Maybe you're the bad guy pretending to be the good guy. You ever think about that? Every day. It's not a coincidence that this whole series then, for me, really takes off once Brian figures out the answer to Mia's challenge, which happens at the end of this movie. Which is exactly where we'll get to later in my list. Yeah, see, for me... My number four is going to be one of those moments that you probably did bristle at. It's the I live my life a quarter mile at a time scene in the Fast and the Furious. So hokey. I'm sorry, but you you don't get to apologize for the corniness later in the series when it's right there from the start. 
And it's the same essence. And I feel like it's being delivered with the same sincerity on the part of the two actors. And I appreciate that there isn't any sort of ironic level going on here. Sure, they grow into their parts a little bit better as the series goes on. That is inevitable, Paul Walker especially. But this scene here, when I first saw the movie, I sat up and thought, okay, this is a movie that maybe is being thought of by the studio and marketers as something for 14-year-old boys. But you know what? The people involved are taking it seriously, and that's coming through on the screen. So I do unironically appreciate this bro bonding that goes on, especially right here. This does take place in Dom's garage. It's the first time we get a sense of who he might be beyond this suspicious street racer. We're not sure if he's a criminal, how much of a criminal he is. We get a little bit behind that layer here. That's my dad. He's coming up in the pro stock car circuit. Last race of the season. Uh, A guy named Kenny Linder came up from inside in the final turn clipped his bumper and put him into the wall at 120. Um, I watched my dad burn to death. I talked about before in our review how it's, you know, this isn't my language that they're talking, but they're unmistakably sincere. There's no posturing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't sense any posturing here. It's just a scene where Dom shows Brian his garage and opens up a little bit about his past. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Nothing else matters, not the mortgage, not the store, not my team and all their bullshit. For those 10 seconds or less, I'm free. I think that it speaks to also that being in the moment ethos that drives the best action scenes. There's a purity there, and it's a little bit a earlier version of what I talked about introducing my list, the just the moment comment that Natalie Kelly makes in Tokyo Drift. Here, Dom talks about being in the moment, and uh, I just like how that echoes something that will carry through even the action scenes. Yeah, it really is where one kind of goes off the rails for me, unfortunately. And it's not irony so much as what you said in terms of growing into their characters. They really do grow into their characters. They and do. They really do grow into their performances. They both, Diesel and Walker, get so much better as this series goes on. And it's not the lack of sincerity. It's too much sincerity. It's the over-earnestness that I didn't feel in that Brian and Mia scene that I had at number five. And I felt, Josh, that it was so forced in there to give this character Oh, no, they're, they're comfortable. They're so comfortable there. <laughs> they're comfortable there, but the way it's forced into the script is what stuck out like a sore thumb to me. And I do think, ultimately, the ethos he verbalizes there doesn't even hold up over the course of the series that much. So it felt like a he little has bit a of line, pseudo-macho yeah, blather watching to me. it again, he has a line there about, uh, you know, it do- he doesn't even matters. care about his family, yeah. which isn't something they've no. established yet. So, yeah, I get that. But overall, this idea of the purity of the race, why they're in this, mm. again, beyond the money, beyond the phone numbers that you get from girls, that was there right at the start that, of this conversation. That stuff, that stuff about his dad and the guy he hit that hit you hard. Oh, yeah. When he when he talks about being uh, how he was scared. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it brings a level of humanity to this that this it is tries. somebody that this is somebody who can be scared. And mm-hmm. it also speaks to another through line. Now that you mentioned that is when he talks about how he got banned from the races for this act of violence. There's this consideration over how violent is Dom going to get. And I think it is, which film is it where the first one with The Rock, so Fast Five, five but where, it's he six. Holds off it's six. The, <laughs> where he holds off the wrench 
from just you no, actually know, I go back. It's five. It You're is right. five. It's yeah, because that's when the first time we see the rock, mm-hmm. and he's he could crack the I rock know. skull They're open. Calling back to so one. it's uh, which it's, I'm yeah. pretty sure they'd so actually already done at least. There's once a before lot that. of yeah. It's a it's a through line. So yeah. there's a lot of bedrock stuff in one that the other series feeds off of, and I think that's because there's some pretty strong stuff there. Okay. I'm glad you feel that way. My number four is a scene that I have to give full credit to our partner over at Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, Allison Wilmore, because after I saw Seven, the next day, her BuzzFeed ranking of the series popped up in my Facebook feed, and she had a little line in there about basically like, come at me, you know, and it's like, okay, well, how audacious can these be? How contrarian could her picks be? And I looked, and you think you're putting the fourth film at number one is a little bit nuts. How about Tokyo Drift? As oh, the did best she? I was going to say, please tell me she didn't go too fast, too in the furious. Franchise. No, that would have been so <laughs> awesome. But reading that clinch for me that I was going to go back and watch Tokyo Drift or watch it for the first time ultimately, and I might not have been as tuned into this moment without her focus on it. And it's the scene where Lucas Black's character, Sean, is riding with Neela, I think her name is. You've mentioned the actress a couple times. Natalie but Kelly, yeah. They are in this chase sequence with the Drift King, the the baby gangster here in this movie, and they're going through Shibuya Crossing, this incredibly busy intersection. And Allison describes it this way. She says it's the series' most sublime moment. The neon-lit intersection is one of the busiest in the world, but as people scramble out of the way of the charging car for a moment, everything is still. It's not the speed that's the most thrilling part of the series after all. Despite the name, it's the quiet in the midst of all of it that's where the lunatic lyricism can be found. And she's right. As you watch it, it isn't just the stillness of it that catches you off guard a little bit and kind of allows you to breathe amidst this insanity of this chase sequence. It's the visuals themselves. You mentioned how Justin Lin kind of pushed things forward a little bit, and I agree with that to an extent because I think it's the only frame you could take out of any Fast and Furious movie and actually compare it to a Kiristami movie because it feels just like the scene we love so much, Josh, in Like Someone in Love, mm-hmm. one of his recent films, the reflection of those lights on the windshield as they're sort of frozen in time for a moment. Again, as Allison says, in a series, it's all about speed, speed, speed. To have that one moment where everything just calms and then we get right back to the chase, it is sublime and it's my number four. You know what one stands out to me like that as well? It's an honorable mention, but I'll just throw it out there now since we're talking about these quiet moments is at the very beginning of Fast Five where Brian and Mia are on the run. It's just setting up the film and we get this slow scene of them driving at regular speed. They look dirty and Mm -hmm. sweaty and tired. And I remember thinking, am I watching the right film? Because I've never seen a car go this slow. You're talking about five. Yeah, five. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the reasons... I love that movie and talk about how sophisticated it is compared to the others is because of the way it opens. Yeah, that, that's really good. All right, we're up to number three, and my number three comes from my favorite Fast and Furious movie, Fast and Furious. I'm going to call it Driving to the Dark Side. It's what you alluded to earlier at the end here. Now, foremost among the reasons why this is my favorite one is because I think it really explores most deeply the idea of the theme of the cop and robber being two sides of Mm -hmm. the same coin. And this is common to Hong Kong action movies like Drug War or Infernal Affairs. And it's really well executed here, I think, with Brian and Dom both going undercover. They have their own reasons for doing this to take down a drug lord. It's really a repairing of this relationship movie because they're still at odds when it begins and they slowly come together by the end. And the final moment, this ending is what I do want to pick. It's after Dom's been captured. He's 
been convicted. So he's on his way to jail on a prison bus. And of course, it's as all roads lead in the Fast and Furious franchise through a barren desert with mountainous terrain in the background. So they're driving along and suddenly this team of cars zooms up from behind, which we know mean to rescue him. And who's driving the lead car? It's Brian, which means he's made a clean break here from the law. Mm -hmm. And he's now officially committing to Dom's team. It's a quick scene, but I love the details. He's in a black car, which maybe you think doesn't mean much, but he's also an American muscle car, which maybe you think doesn't mean much, but we know he usually prefers bright imports, right? That's Brian's style, but not here. Also, Dom sitting in the prison bus. I love how he knows what's going on. How? The engine. Of course. Here's the engine. He's like, okay, that's all I need to know. And this leads to what I think is a great cliffhanger ending Mm -hmm. where we don't see what happens until the next film, as yeah. you talked about. I just I just love how they, at this point, they had the confidence and the commercial clout to be able to do that in a way that really does pay mm-hmm. off. Well, going back to my number five pick, there's something always a little bit thrilling about watching someone finally figure out who they are, even if they're going to the dark side, uh-huh. as it turns out, or what many might perceive, society might perceive as the dark side. At least he's finally embraced his true calling, which up to this point he hasn't been able to do. Before we get to my number three, we did put out a feeler on Facebook and Twitter for some voicemails. We asked our listeners to weigh in with their favorite Fast and Furious moment. We got this from Josh Youngerman. He is in Bushwick, New York. scene where Letty saves uh, Dom in Furious 7 and then the scene where Dom saves Letty in Furious 6. Uh, the reason I think these work so well is they sort of underline the themes of family um, and love that this series has. And also, as ridiculous as the action is in these movies, and they are ridiculous, the reason it's grounded is because uh, you actually care about the characters. So um, I think that central relationship, while you know the bromance is still very strong, uh, that central relationship is key to why these Fast and Furious films speak to such a wide audience. Thank you very much. So Josh, as you're well aware, Josh Youngerman, a huge fan of this franchise. He likes his I Fast mean, and Furious movies. We like to think we're we're experts, we're <laughs> dilettantes compared to Josh at this point. And he did cheat a little bit there, connecting scenes from two different movies with Letty and Dom. And that dovetails nicely into my number three pick. It's another dialogue scene. It's another key line of dialogue, I think, in this whole series. It's from Furious 6. And as much as I do think this is a step down from Fast Five, it's in this exchange, which happens between Dom, Vin Diesel, and the bad guy, Owen Shaw, where Dom's true ethos, and by extension, the ethos that truly grounds this whole franchise is laid out, and it's certainly all over Furious 7. It isn't that quarter mile at a time macho talk. It's the living by a code that puts family above all else. And as we noted during our review, family doesn't just mean who you're related to by blood. That's great in the holidays, but it makes you predictable. And an outline of work predictable means vulnerable. And that means I can reach out and break you whenever I want. At least when I go, I'll know what it's for. Well, at least you have a code. Dom's great line there, at least when I go, I'll know what it was for. Pardon me, Josh, for trying to make this all a little bit deeper than it may truly be. But what more can any of us ask for when we go, really? Yes, 
family and that type of love and that type of connection is messy. It does make you vulnerable, but it's more meaningful and it's more satisfying than something like what drives the other guy, which is precision. The little chat does end nicely, too, with one of Shaw's men ready to take Dom out because he knows Dom isn't going to break his code. So he comes prepared to not let him disrupt his plan. But, of course, Dom has some backup of his own, as we see in The Rock, and we get this nice little showdown between these two rivals. This whole conversation is something that could almost be taken out and plopped into a classic Western on the streets of some frontier town between these two gunslingers. And I really like that scene, but I really like what it's ultimately about and how it connects to the whole series or the whole franchise more than anything. Yeah, I did like that precision ethos that the Luke Evans character had. That's why I think he's one of the better villains is he's not just this drug lord. Yeah, at lord. least he has a code. He, he has this vague goal, that's for sure, the James Bond villain goal. But but I do like how you see that in even the cars that his team has, this mm-hmm. sense of precision. So uh, he's, he's definitely a plus in that film. My number two is coming from the conventional favorite, Fast Five, and it's the cliff jump. This is at the end of the Bravura opening set piece. After Dom has rescued Brian, just before he collides, he's jumping off this train that's going to and he's going to collide into the bridge that's going over this enormous canyon. So he jumps on Dom's car, doesn't crash, but then they're too close to the edge. So what are they going to do? Well, Dom hits the gas, of course. <laughs> what else would he do? And gives them as much elevation as possible, the chance to time their jumps from the car into the river that's way, way, way down below. Again, it's a single shot, really, that I'm picking out here. When we cut to that medium shot, looking at Dom and Brian from the hood of the car, slow motion, the music and sound effects cut out, except for the wind. All we hear, Mm -hmm. there's this purity to it. And their faces. I mean, if you you think about, now how does an action star act, really, besides having charisma, maybe, or a persona? How do you actually act in, when you're doing something? They're not actually jumping off this cliff, but they're still acting out action. And they really, the expressions they pull work. I mean, you get a rare yeah. look of concern from Dom sure. in this scene. Like he's, he's not quite sure how this is going to go. Brian, one thing I like about Paul Walker throughout the series, he often will show fear mm-hmm. when something crazy is going on. And you definitely see that flicker of fear here. Yet both of them, there's something else on their look that says, this is surmountable. We can figure this out. <laughs> if we've survived everything uh-huh. else, we can figure this out. So they're not just purely scared. So even if this was all CGI, I think those faces would make it worth it. And they did use a green screen for that medium shot. But I did look, and I found, maybe we'll link to it in show notes, uh, how they did it sequence as well. And they used an air cannon to launch a Corvette into a canyon, not quite as high up, but they launched the Corvette out. Then they also had the stunt guys separately jump from the same spot. Mm. And then they put the two sequences together in post-production. But man, it definitely has, you buy it when you watch it, you buy the whole thing. You definitely do. And I actually have that same sequence from Fast Five as my number two. But there's a specific moment I'm going to single out that's different from the cliff jump. The train heist, though, I think overall is just a really thrilling sequence. It it might be really that first demarcation line that we've gone from the previous world, that split we touched on earlier, to this new James Bond, Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible world where something like that cliff jump 
that seems totally ridiculous, but in the moment you completely buy it. That's where this shift really starts to happen with this franchise. And I'm going to keep the Western theme going a little bit here, because if you think about it, this sequence 60 years ago or so would have happened very similarly, except with horses horses. riding up alongside the train. And they'd be riding horses. They'd be stealing money or diamonds or something instead of confiscated cars. And they definitely would not have had that vehicle lift thingy that allows them to so conveniently slide cars off the train and then drive the cars onto the ground safely. I suppose, Josh, it probably wouldn't end with our two heroes riding their horses off a cliff into the water and surviving either. But this is the world of Fast and the Furious. Otherwise, I think John Ford would have shot it exactly the same way (laughs) Justin Lin does. The barren Brazilian landscape actually seems ripped from a Ford movie. And I'm going to push it a little bit more here with my favorite part of the sequence. It's not O'Connor just barely making it onto Dom's vehicle before hitting the bridge or that jump. It's Vin Diesel's entrance. The movie opens with Brian and Mia and Vince, one of the characters from Fast and Furious 1, and them agreeing to take this job, which they think is just them stealing some cars. Diesel hasn't actually shown up on screen yet at this point. They haven't connected with him. And that lift vehicle thing pulls up alongside the train. We don't really know who's driving it or who's on it. And they start to cut the metal. And because I'm not a gear guy or any kind of tool guy, I can't tell you what that thing is. That is called a uh, metal cutter. Metal cutter. Thank you, Josh. I knew I had you around for good reason. They cut this big open gap enough to fit a car in, in this moving train. And Lynn then cuts to inside where, of course, it's dark because they're inside the train. But as that metal side of the train falls off, the light comes in and who walks in but Vin Diesel. He emerges from the light into the light, actually, where we see that close up of his face. And I'd have to go back and watch it, but it feels like a little bit of a track forward on his face for dramatic effect, a la John Wayne and his entrance in Stagecoach. I think it's a really nice visual moment that Lynn allows us as viewers to catch our breath, to welcome our hero, the alpha male, onto screen before the chaos really ensues. Or how about the searchers, the end of the searchers, the yeah. sort of silhouette where you see the vista behind You're right, him absolutely. Too. So, yeah, yeah, that is just a fabulous sequence. All right, my number one is racing across the train tracks from, yes, Adam, your favorite, The Fast and the Furious, the ending of the first film. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I love this scene. Old school. It's it's the ultimate Fast and Furious moment for me because it's a thrilling stunt that also defines so much about the characters. Uh, these are the final moments. This is after Brian has tried to convince Dom to turn himself in. They end up having this argument, and it gets more complicated than this. Some bad guys show up, but basically at the end, they're left together, and they're going to settle this with an impromptu street race, as so often happens. They end up communicating everything from this point on through their actions, and it gets extra complicated once the race begins because a train starts approaching at the crossing that's lying ahead. So everything is heightened here once the train shows up. Is that going to convince Dom that he should give up and turn himself in? Like, this is, you know what? You've had a good run. Pull over. If not, how far is Brian going to go to catch him is the next question. Is he going to risk crossing the tracks himself? So it's a test for both of them in so many ways. And then we get that sublime shot just after they've crossed and escaped. They've burst through the gates and the train just fills the screen behind them. You've got the two cars and the train racing behind them. Uh, The capper is that they smile at each other in relief and also the thrill they've just experienced. It, it sort of defines this character camaraderie and the conflict that's really going to go on to define, for me, 
the heart of the series until they do get to be on the same team. Once mm. that tension leaves, some of the attractiveness to me for the series leaves a little bit too. But here, it's there. It's setting so much up. Um, I don't know if any, I couldn't find anything about how they shot this sequence, if any CGI was used here or if they actually somehow timed that with the train. But it, again, it is entirely convincing and my favorite Fast and Furious moment. It's a great moment. I liked it better when it was surfing in Point Break, but you it's a good point moment. Break? <laughs> Jeez. I do it just to annoy you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't my, ever try to copy Point Break. It can't be done better. Well, my number one, after all this attempts at pontificating about connections to Westerns and the ethos of the franchise and these serious moments, I got nothing more. It comes down to flying cars. As listener Jarrett Green said it on Facebook, in Fast 7, when they drive dang cars out of a dang plane. Really? Yes. Come the on. Just in terms of cars. pure, just... The craft now, of that whole sequence. But you've criticized the CGI in other scenes. That's got to be notice a lot there. of CGI, well, don't you yeah, think? Yeah, but, but it's not about CGI. It's about when you notice the CGI and it feels fake. And I do actually remember you brought up in Furious 7 during our review, the A-Team, and how they dropped a tank out yeah. of the plane. I've seen that sequence, oh, sure, actually, yeah. you know, flipping through channels. It's like, done I, much better here. It's horrible. I mean, granted, it's a tank and you don't care about any of the characters and it's not all these <laughs> different cars and whatever. But everything about how this is crafted versus just the mass chaos of that yeah. and the bad kind of chaos, not the zen kind that you appreciate and that I appreciate as well. There's none of that craft in something like the A-Team. Owen Shaw would appreciate the precision of everything about this sequence. And I just think the whole sequence works. It's that flip you talked about. It's the last second escape Paul Walker has. But it was just feeling that bit of vertigo, watching these cars on that big IMAX screen and then watching them somehow perfectly land exactly well, except for one of them, land precisely where they're supposed to land and then see them carry out their plan. There was something beautiful about it. You know what? I'll give you this. That's finally where Tyrese won me over. It mm-hmm. took it took six films. <laughs> when his bravado but, just degenerated into abject fear. Yeah, I kind of liked him there. That felt authentic. That's my number one. Flying cars in Furious 7. And those are our top five fast and furious moments. We have another voicemail, Josh. I wanted to get to a longtime listener, Christopher Redman. Hey, Adam and Josh, it's Christopher Redman here from DearCastAndCrew.com. I want to thank you guys for giving a little love to Fast and the Furious. Uh, This most recent film is certainly worth discussing, if for no other reason than I defy you to find a franchise that has gotten so much better and successful with each new film. I mean, Furious 7 actually made more money in its first day than Tokyo Drift did altogether. And I only jumped on the bandwagon with Fast 5, where that train sequence single-handedly elevated the series, in my opinion, to must-see status for all action fans. But my favorite moment is actually the post-credit clip from Fast and Furious 6. Now, without giving anything away, they kill off a major and beloved character after the movie was done. I mean, after the movie was done, think about that. Not only that, but they also introduced my man crush, Jason Statham, as the big bad for Furious 7. So the last two years of waiting have been kind of torture as a result, but the wait was worth it. This series is truly pushing what's possible in action cinema, and I defy anyone to see it and not have a good time. So thanks, guys, but if you'll excuse me, Daddy's got to get to work. So he too loves the train sequence at the beginning of Fast Five, but his number one, I'm embarrassed to admit, because I never stick around for these, is the post credit sequence 
to number six. I saw a couple of people reference this, that everybody knew that Jason Statham was going to be the bad guy in Furious 7 because it was foretold in Fast and Furious 6. I didn't know that. Yeah, we stuck around for those credits. Saw that too. Yeah? Yeah. Well, the music, how could you not? Why would you want to turn that music off? <laughs> no, that's that's a good point. We do lose a key character at the end of that as well, but I'm going to have to put the DVD back in and watch it just to enjoy it as much as Christopher did. What about any honorable mentions, Josh, that you really regretted leaving off your Fast and Furious moments? Well, Joshua Youngerman talked about the Dom Letty relationship, which I did really appreciate throughout this franchise. So I thought about putting the one that I think he may be referencing, or it might come right after that, where they're comparing scars. Dom, at this point, she still has amnesia. I love that. I love that there is an amnesia subplot in this franchise as well. That actually works. Oh, of course and, there and is, here, because it goes back to Jason Bourne a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And here he's trying to jog her memory by comparing the scars. Mm-hmm. One, one that they've got together at the same time. So that's from Fast and Furious 6. Dragging the vault at the end of Fast 5. I mean, that that's another reason I think people hold that up as the favorite because it's bookended with these huge action set pieces and dragging the vault is pretty good. And then I did have one I thought about from Furious 7, not the flying cars, but plain chicken. Twice in this film... There's a game of chicken that ends. I at least have never seen a game of chicken in a film end this way. (laughs) No one's dared. Speaking of mating rituals (laughs) in cars. A little bit. A little bit. So I thought about that one. Okay. Well, I've got a few here as well, including from Tokyo Drift, another one I did think about when Sean has his first race in Tokyo against the Drift King. Not only because we get some great camera stuff, but because he gets so soundly thumped. And that little bit of humor as he limps to the finish line works the fuel tanker hijack at the beginning of your favorite fast and furious 4 Mm -hmm. because it calls back to fast and furious 1 and you think about how that movie begins and ends we haven't seen these characters in two or three so it's like Lynn right away said hey i'm getting the gang back together here and everything's right with the world with that hijack scene very similar as i touched on during our seven review when the rock and vin diesel finally throw down after all that testosterone and that back and forth. They finally just get to unleash it on each other in five. I like that. The tank rescue at the end of six is also really good. And in terms of just pure humor, the best line in the whole franchise is in Fast Five when the team reunites and Tyrese asks Ludacris if he's going to give Martin Luther King's car back. And Ludacris says to Tyrese as soon as he gives Rick James's jacket back. You I'm like sorry. That, huh? I thought that was funny. But just to rub it in, just to rub it Not in. Not another Tyrese moment. No. I've got, well, yeah, actually, it does involve Tyrese <laughs> because it's from Too Fast, Too and Furious. I, the oh. Warehouse Scramble. The Warehouse Scramble as part of the big set piece in that movie. I think our friend, the very wise, the very wise Sean Gilman, the dean of the Film Spotting Forum, one of the key members of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, I think in his letterbox review, he compared it to Minnelli. Really? With the colors well, there dancing. Is that, yeah, and there is that overhead shot. Where the overhead shot. Yeah, That's it. Yeah. It's good. Come on. And Tyrese is in it. He's very far away. He's very far away. For the record, I think Tyrese is very good in Baby Boy. He's Singleton's very good Baby in Baby Boy. Boy. So I, I do like him as an actor. I, I think this series much. does not do him justice. Really? I mean, come on. It, he's. I think, I think they used him just right in Seven. Could have gone yes, a little bit too far. I agree. They used him just right. He won me over seven. by Seven. Now, why would you trust us? You barely know us. I know enough. Ex-cop, military, something like that. The way you took out them guys shows training. Tech guy, offended by the hacker remark, naturally. Alpha. 
Mrs. Alpha. Joker. Wrong. Double Alpha. Man candy. You know what I'm saying? Man, sit your candy <laughs> ass down. Tyrese's Joker from Furious 7 getting the last word there. And that's going to be our last word on the Fast and Furious franchise, at least for a year or so, Josh. If you do have any thoughts, any additional moments you want to add to that top five or any other comments about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. That's our show for this week. If you want some more, head over to the show archives at filmspotting.net. You can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005, including, yes, even more Fast and Furious talk. Also at filmspotting.net. That's where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking you which MCU Phase 4 film you're most excited about. If you'd like to pick up a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other merch, go ahead and visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Don't forget to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter as well. Do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release, including here in Chicago this weekend, David Crosby, Remember My Name, and Mike Wallace is here. Both docs I am eager to see. And out wide, Hobbs and Shaw, recommended by Josh. I recommend... The first two thirds, and then maybe oh, come on, maybe You're go get some popcorn. Way too much weight. Maybe get some popcorn on, and just don't come back. stuff. Next week on the show, we will go back to our nine from ninety nine series. I think we're going to do the Blair Witch Project, and then we might launch our Marlena Dietrich Joseph von Sternberg marathon with the first film in that series. Again, if you do want to follow along and you want to be prepared for that show, go to filmspotting.net/slash/marathons to view the complete lineup. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from The Beths. For more information, visit TheBeths.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. I love the effort you're putting into this intro. It's really going to make the show. Wow. Sadly, I'm still taking notes. On oh, that. okay. Well, hey, wait, you have that many notes yeah, on this movie? You have that? How many pages of notes is that? It's all how many quotes of their insults. Come on. How many pages? Uh, this would be one, two, three, four, five and a quarter. What? Yeah. Come on. That's what, that's what you got to do, Adam. I barely got one. What <laughs> could you have possibly been writing? Uh, you'll hear it. You're about to hear it. You are such, you're such a professional. I'm it's just, really infuriating. I don't think that's any. You're such I a professional. Think that's any indication? Teach me how to do it, Josh. I really don't think it helps. Uh, you're... We'll find out. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire. Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.